We live in an age of endless information. We have access to more information today than at any point in human history. Got a question? You can search the world for answers. Need directions? Maps can lead you just about anywhere. Need to buy something? You can locate it, make your purchase, and have it shipped to you all in a few minutes. But access to all this information doesn't necessarily make us wiser, happier, or provide any deeper meaning in life. The wisest man who ever lived had everything he desired, but came to the conclusion that life without meaning is empty. But a life spent searching for the answers God provides is a life worth living. Well, wasn't the worship time so wonderful this morning? So wonderful. And then you love having a choir and orchestra with us. We love that when that, they, they've done three services, so they're a little tired, but we're so grateful for them. There was a guy that uh, was a jogger, and he was jogging, and it was at night, and he decided to uh, take a detour to uh, maybe take a shortcut home, and he went through a cemetery. Now, as he's jogging through the cemetery, he did not know that they had just dug a grave right there in the cemetery. It was empty. It was deep. And of all things, he falls into the grave. But it's so deep, he can't get out. He tries and tries, claws and scrapes trying to get out. He can't get out of the grave. And he finally gives up and says, I'm just going to have to curl up here in a corner. I'm just going to have to wait until the morning and maybe find some, get somebody's attention. So there he is, curled up in the corner of the grave, waiting. And when you know, another jogger is jogging, and he decides to take a shortcut through the cemetery, and he lands right in that grave. Now, the first jogger knows that the second jogger is in the grave, but the second jogger does not know about the first jogger. So immediately, he's just trying to get out. He's just trying his hardest. The second, first jogger, he's trying to see, okay, does he do something different than I do? And he makes it out, but no, he doesn't. And finally, the first jogger puts his hand on the shoulder of the second jogger and says, you can't get out of here. But did you know the second jogger got out in two seconds? You just got to have proper motivation. <laughs> There's this guy that he had a friend who's going to start uh, open up a new shop. And uh, so he was trying to be nice and he, he sent his friend, sent this woman a, a, a bouquet of flowers at her new shop first day. She got the flowers and she called him and said, thank you so much for the flowers, but I do not understand the message. He said, well, what does the message say? She said, it says rest in peace. He said, oh, no, that is not right. The florist messed this all up. I am so sorry. They hung up. He calls the florist. You messed up my flower arrangement. That the sign or the, the message on the flower arrangement, she checked. Oh, you are so right. But she said, I'm going to tell you, in a cemetery right now, somewhere there is a bunch of flowers that says, good luck in your new location. <laughs> so, now obviously... I want to talk to you today about the subject of death. What happens when, after we die? We're in the series in 
the book of Ecclesiastes, and this is the last message in the series. Now, we're not at the end of Ecclesiastes. You'll notice we're just sort of a little bit beyond halfway. So why are we bringing it to an end? Well, the reason is this. When you're reading the book of Ecclesiastes, when you get past a certain point, it starts reading like the book of Proverbs. We've been through two different studies of the book of Proverbs, and it reads like, you know, the same guy, Solomon, wrote both books, and it starts sounding like the book of Proverbs. So I thought, what I'm going to do when we go get in Ecclesiastes, I'm going to just deal with that section of Ecclesiastes that deals with the big questions of life, the hard issues of life. And that's what we have been talking about, uh, answers to life's biggest issues. And, and we talked about what is the meaning of life? Chapter 1. Chapter 2. How can we build in our lives such a deep happiness and joy and peace of heart that it can survive anything we face in our lives? Chapter 3. How do we make the most of the years we have on planet Earth? We have limited time. How do we make the most of these years? And then 4 and 5 was about this idea. Now, what should be the focus of my life. Wouldn't it make sense then, the last question we would tackle is, what happens after I die? And that is what Solomon is going to help us with. Now, some people don't like talking about death. You, you're so sad now when you find out that I'm talking about death. Why did I come to church today? Because some people like to avoid this whole topic, thinking if they can avoid it, it'll somehow go away. But Solomon actually says, Boy, just the opposite is true. In Ecclesiastes 7.4, he says, a wise person thinks about death. Part of being a wise person is to spend some time and think about death. Why? Well, the verse before that, Ecclesiastes 7 verse 3 says, sorrow is better than laughter. It may sadden your face, but it sharpens your understanding. So you got to go through those hard times. you got to go through those hard questions and hard, difficult issues because it sharpens your understanding and the focus of your life. In fact, I am totally convinced that we're not really ready to live our best life until we're ready to die. It is so important that we deal with this issue. So what I want to do is I want us to look at two different ways to look at death because both of them will affect our attitude, and Solomon deals with both of them. And the first one is the view of death from a mere human observation. What does death look like from just a human, mere human observation? Forget all the other stuff, life after death, but what does it just look like from a mere human observation? Well, Solomon says three things. First, he says that from human observation, death is inescapable. Everybody dies. Ecclesiastes 2.16, we must all die, wise and foolish alike. You can be as foolish of a human being as you want to do, be, and you will die. And you can be as wise of, as a human being as you want to be, and you will still die. Everybody dies. Life starts at conception and ends at death. It's inescapable. Second of all, from human observation, death is the end of life. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 6, the dead know nothing. Their loves, their hates, their passions, all the things that happen to them on this earth, all die with them. It's over. From mere human observation, it's over. 
Death is the end of life. Third, from human observation, the idea of death is depressing. Ecclesiastes 9.5, the living at least know they will die. At least they know something. The living know, living know something. But the dead know nothing. They have no future reward, nor are they remembered. Here I am, discouraging everybody, putting everybody in depression again, and it has been week after week, but he has a way of doing this, doesn't he? And some of you, maybe somebody has reached over somebody else that they came with and said, you mean we got up early to come to hear something like this today? And I get it. Solomon is saying to us that the human limited understanding of death is horrible. But he goes even further than that. He says this, if this, in the here and now, if this is all there is, my life means absolutely nothing. I want you to grab hold of this. If this is all there is, if this is all there is, the here and now, then my life means nothing. Leo Tolstoy is uh, one of the greatest writers who ever lived. He lived in, he was born in 1828, and he died in 1910. That, that made him 82 years old when he died, and, and remembering his age when he dies is important to the story. He died at 82. He was one of the most brilliant human beings that's ever lived, and he is considered one of the greatest writers of all time. He wrote uh, A War and Peace that is forever long, and he wrote so many books, and he was a brilliant, amazing writer. Leo Tolstoy made this statement at age 50, and listen to what he said. I'm just going to quote him. I'm going to read verbatim what he said. You ready? Something strange began to happen to me at age 50. I had a wife who loved me and who I loved. I had a large estate which, without much effort on my own, increased. My name was respected. I enjoyed physical strength. And yet, I could not live because of death. The question which brought me to the verge of suicide sought an answer without which one cannot really live. And here it is. Is there any meaning in life that my inevitable death does not destroy? Today or tomorrow, death will come to those I love and then to me. And soon... Not only will I not exist, but eventually no one who exists who remembers me will have any remembrance of what I have written or done. They'll all be dead too. So why then go on with the effort? What is it all for? What does it all lead to? What difference does it make whether or not I do this thing or that thing or nothing at all? I could give no rational meaning to any single action of mine or even to my whole life. What was so surprising was how we can fail to see this. 
For a time, it is possible to live intoxicated with life. But as soon as one is sober, it is impossible not to see that life is the face, in the face of death is a fraud and a stupid one at that. How often I've been told, oh, you cannot understand the meaning of life, so don't even think about it, just live. But I can no longer do that. What he said is really true. For a while, all of us, as we're growing up, are intoxicated with life. You, you grow up, you leave your home, you go to college, and you, you, you study, and you're thinking about what you're going to be when you grow up kind of thing. And then, and then you graduate from college, and you have a degree, and you, you, maybe you meet someone, and you, you, be, you get married, and you have children. You're raising your kids, and you're trying to, create, you're trying to build your career or, or develop some business that you own, and, and you're pouring everything you have into it, and you're giving everything you got. And then suddenly... In the intoxication of all that drive that you're doing, it dawns on you when you sober up. What does it mean? I'm going to live and die, and finally all the people that know me are going to die, and nobody's even going to remember I was here. What does it all mean? And this is what Tolstoy is saying. And at the age of 50, he said, I've came to the end of myself. Because listen to me, this is the agnostic and atheist worldview. The agnostic and atheist worldview is nothing matters. Now, look, we've all got to have some kind of purpose. So create some purpose in your life and give yourself to that purpose and die. Okay. And that is the atheistic worldview about life. And Tolstoy came to this moment in his life in which he said, I, I, I can't believe this is it. Now, he died at 82. He was 50 years old when this happened. And so what happened to Tolstoy, you go look at his life, he began to search for a meaning outside of the atheistic worldview. And he came to understand about Jesus Christ, and he committed his heart and soul to Jesus Christ. He not just accepted Christ as a Savior, he became a deeply devoted follower the rest of his life to Jesus Christ. One of the most brilliant men who ever lived, one of the greatest authors who ever lived, who came to understand this truth, life's got to mean more than this. One view of death is our life and death is the merely human view. But there is a second view. This view of death comes from God's perspective. God has told us that there is more to life than what we see. You look at all the archaeological research, all of the civilizations that have been discovered all over the world. It doesn't matter where in the world. It doesn't matter how far removed from other civilizations they are. It may be a civilization that is on some island somewhere, doesn't even know that anybody else exists but them. 
No matter how separated these civilizations are, are compacted, no matter what year, what time era they live in, as far back as we can dig archaeologically to this point, as far back as historians can read anything that has been left behind by any of these civilizations, and there are two things in common. As separated as we are, as different as we are all over the world as we are, there are two things that are similar about every civilization that's ever been discovered. The first one is a belief in a higher power. There was always, in every single one of them, a deep-seated belief in a higher power. They got it wrong most of the time. The sun is a god. The, the moon is a god. The cow, Our cows are gods. Whatever it is, or will it just stack rocks up, and now this is a god? Or let's carve some image with a piece of wood, and now that's a god? Got it wrong most of the time, but there was this deep-seated, there is in every civilization a deep-seated sense, this didn't just happen. There is a God or gods that has made this happen. There has to be a God that has created all of this. There is a second thing that is a deep-seated, you'll find it in every civilization, and that is there is life after death. That is why in every one of these digs, when they come to these, these uh, uh, graves and they dig into these graves, they find here are tools in the grave. There are clothes in the grave. This is evidence that there was food put in the grave. Why? Because in the next life, this guy's going to need tools. This guy's going to need some clothes. This guy's going to need some food in the next life. This is what the pyramids were all about. The pyramids were about life after death. This is why they were made why they were created. This is the happy hunting grounds of the North American Indians. Every civilization, everywhere, anywhere, had this deep-seated sense that there is a power greater than me that created this, and there is life after this life. Why? Why are these two things so consistent in every civilization? Solomon knew there was a forever with God. And here's what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 3.11. God has set eternity into the hearts of people. What is he saying? It's an instinct. This is a human instinct. This is a human instinct to believe in God and believe in life after death. Why? Because God put it in our heart. It's as much of an instinct for human beings to believe that there is life after this life as it is for birds to build nests and salmon to swim upstream to spawn. It's just who we are. It's just human beings. And every civilization demonstrates it. God built within us an instinct that he's there and there is life after death. Solomon didn't understand everything. Solomon knew that there is an eternity and those who trust in God will have that eternity with God, but he was in the dark about almost everything else. Actually, Solomon's father, King David, knew more about life after death than Solomon did. And there were times along the way, different things would come to light and understanding that God would reveal, but it's not until Jesus that the light turns on. It's not until Jesus that the clarity begins to happen. It is Jesus Christ that changes everything, that helps us to understand this whole idea of life after death. Jesus told us that after death, we will encounter God personally. 
Jesus talked about a time of judgment all of us will experience with God. And notice the passage that Jesus gives it to us. It's just one of many, but notice this passage. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31 and through a whole lot of other verses. Here we go. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. Now stop right there. You cannot say that Jesus was just a good teacher. You cannot just say that Jesus is just a good teacher about morals. You can't say that because no good teacher, no just teacher about good morals says this about himself. Jesus is talking about himself. Who is this son of man? He calls himself son of man. He says about himself, the son of man is coming in my glory and all the angels are coming with me and we'll, we will, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. No moral teacher, just a moral teacher says that about himself. Jesus understood who he was, the Son of God. And Jesus, talking about himself, then says, all of the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another. Then the king will say to those on the right, who is the king he's talking about? He's talking about himself. Because look at what he says. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire. Circle the word eternal, circle the word fire. Jesus is not talking about annihilation. He makes it very clear. He is talking about an eternal fire. Prepared for the devil and his angels. God did not make hell for people. God never intended people to be there. He did not make hell for people. He made hell for Satan and for those angels that we call demons that fell and followed Satan for the devil and his angels. That's who God made hell for. But people will be there. How do we know? Listen to what Jesus said the next words. Then they. Who's the they? They that are on the left, you cursed Depart from me, you are cursed into the eternal fire. Then they will go away to eternal punishment. Circle the word eternal, circle the word punishment, because it's not just eternal fire, it is eternal punishment. But the righteous to eternal, circle the word eternal, circle the word life. You can't get any clearer about what Jesus is saying is coming. There is an eternal life in heaven. There is a, an eternal punishment in hell. And Jesus is making it as clear as it can be. So you say, well, who cares what Jesus says? What makes Jesus any different from any other religious teacher, any other moral teacher? Who cares what Jesus says? What makes him different? The resurrection. It's a game changer. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changed everything. It changed who he is in comparison to who anybody else is. There have been plenty of moral teachers that have risen and fallen. There are plenty of religious people that have come and gone, and they died, and they're dead. But Jesus, 
resurrected from the grave. It was the resurrection of Jesus from the grave and spending 40 days. He didn't just spend a few moments with his disciples and were gone. He spent 40 days, day after day after day after day after day with his disciples. This is why every one of his disciples came to the choice, you either deny the resurrection. You can say Jesus is wonderful, you love him and all that, but you better deny the resurrection or you die. And they said, we cannot deny the resurrection because we didn't make it up. It's true, it's real, and every one of them died. Because they wouldn't deny it. Because they couldn't. If you've ever done any work in apologetics of the arguments for and against the resurrection, I wish you would if you haven't, because that will stun you. That the overwhelming argument from history, the overwhelming argument from human behavior, the overwhelming argument is in favor of the resurrection, not against the resurrection. The arguments against the resurrection are hokey and easily disproven. That's why it stands, because if you can prove that there was no resurrection, Christianity falls, it's over. So don't you know that has been the key where, place that generation after generation have tried to disprove and still have not accomplished it? I'm serious. Go look at the evidence. You will be stunned by the evidence in favor of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How do I know that what Jesus said is true? Because of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proved that what he said about God is true. What he said about himself is true. What he said about you is true. What he said about life after death is true. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, a book that was written only a few years after the resurrection, says it is given to man once to die and after that the judgment. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, this is a verse that is written only to Christ's followers, not to people who have rejected Jesus, but only to Christ's followers in 2 Corinthians 5, 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. He's only talking to Christ followers when he says that. Jesus described the place called hell. He described it. In fact, Jesus talks more about the subject of heaven and hell than any other person who wrote in the Bible. In fact, you can take everything everybody else wrote in the Bible and bring it together, and Jesus talked more about heaven and hell than all of them put together. Jesus described hell as a place of physical, emotional, spiritual, and relational suffering. Luke 16, Revelation 20, Revelation 14, just go and read. Jesus described that this is a place where people go who reject Jesus Christ as Savior. What happens about people that have never heard of Jesus. The Bible has things to say about that. It has not been, the Bible doesn't totally address that issue, but none of that applies to you because you are now hearing about Jesus Christ. And the Bible, Jesus said that all of those who reject him as Savior, this is the place for them. It is an eternal separation from God 
and all that is good. But Jesus said there's another option. Jesus urged us to choose heaven. What is heaven like? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 says that heaven is like nothing we've ever seen. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, neither has even entered into the heart of man. What heaven will be like, the place that God has made for those who love him. In other words, you can imagine whatever beautiful music you've heard, when you get to heaven, you will be amazed at what you hear. All beautiful colors you've seen, when you get to heaven, you'll be amazed at what you see. Nothing that you've experienced here will look anywhere close to what you will see there. And you and I, you can imagine the greatest sights you've ever seen on the earth, just so beautiful, so amazing, out in outer space, so beautiful, so amazing. Think of all the great things, the experiences you have. Bring them all together, multiply them by a million, and it still won't be enough to describe what heaven will be like. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has even entered into the imagination of anyone what God has prepared for those who love him. This is why, do I know everything? Does the Bible answer everything about heaven? Not in the slightest. But the truth is, how could it? What language, what experiences could it, could it equate it to be like that would say, well, now this is and what heaven is like, and we'd even understand it because it is beyond anything we've ever imagined, anything we've ever dreamed. But what Jesus did tell us about heaven is that heaven is a place, is God's place, where he has banished death and sin and sorrow. Is there an amen to that? where he has banished death and sin and sorrow. Heaven is God's place from where he reigns. The Bible says that we're going to have a spiritual body in heaven. So how old is this spiritual body going to be? I don't know. I do know this, that my dad died at age 92, and there's no way in thunder I believe he's going to spend all of eternity at the age of 92. And, it, and I also know this, that children pre-born that were aborted went to heaven and children that have souls and went to heaven and those babies that have been born that die as little babies, neither one of them are going to be a baby throughout all eternity. I do know that. How old are we going to be? I don't know, but I just think I'm going to be a lot younger than I am right now and pretty vibrant, man. My youngest son, Jonathan, um, when he was four, five, six, something along that line, we'd put him to bed and he would start crying and we could hear him crying and so we'd go up. And you know how kids are. They will do anything, literally anything, to stay up. And so they, use, they have every kind of creative thing they can do to stay up. So we thought, this is what he's doing. I'd go up to his room, and he'd be crying, and i okay, what's wrong? And he would try to explain it. It didn't make any sense to me. And, you know, I, and night after night, it was like four nights in a row, the same thing. And I was, what is going on? And finally, he got it out. You know, little kids, he couldn't articulate it, and he finally got it out. He said, I, when I die, I'm going to heaven. And I said, this is the good thing. This is the good part. He said, no, it's not. 
Jonathan, why are you saying that? He said, because I'm hearing people talk about heaven, and you're going to be standing in front of God for 10,000 years singing. I hear what they say, and you're going to be singing for 10,000 years. And he said, Dad, I don't mind singing, but not 10,000 years. And he said, heaven is going to be so boring. And I realized this is what happens with little kids in church, and we use this language that we use. Heaven is going to be the most boring place in the whole world, and I don't want to go there. And I realized, I, I, I didn't laugh like you just did, but I wanted to. I felt that. I thought, oh, my, so I can't believe it. So I said, okay, do you remember when we went to Disneyland in Los Angeles, remember we went to Disneyland? It was it fun? Oh, it was so much fun. I said, you, let's talk about, let's, let's think of all the fun things, all the fun things that you've ever done with playing baseball and doing stuff and being with friends. We just talked about every kind of experience. I said, now, put all of those together. Wouldn't that be a great world? He said, yes. And I said, now, it's like a billion times more than that. In heaven, it's just a great place and everything we ever wanted to do and there we get to do it and it's wonderful and it's so special and God's so creative that every day is so different. Oh, wow, I never thought about doing that. This is so much fun. Oh, I'm having the best time doing this and that. I mean, we talked about just like that kind of language. And when I got finished, he said, I want to go to heaven. I said, I know. He got so excited about heaven, he kind of wanted to go now. I said, oh, no, wait a minute. We got, some, we got some things to do. We got some things we got to do before we go. Heaven will be a place where we are together in perfect love for each other. All hate is gone. Can you imagine a world like that? All hate is gone. All sin is gone. All illness is gone. All death is gone. All politics are gone. All politics are gone. Yes. There's no Republicans, no Democrats, and no independents in heaven. Just Christ followers. No politics. No death. No sin. No hate. Now here's my question. Which place would you rather go? Because you're going one or the other. Which place would you rather go? How can we make the choice of heaven? The Bible says basically this. What will determine which way we go is what did we do with Jesus? This is the bottom line. What did you do with Jesus? The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now, the verbal confession is simply, I give testimony of a truth. 
Jesus, you are Lord. What does that mean? For every one of us, we all have a throne in our life. We have a throne, and we sit on the throne, and we call the shots, and we do what we please, and we, we run the show. But when we step off of the throne, and we let Jesus Christ be on the throne of our life, he brings order to the life. He, he, he gives us far more than we would have ever been able to do for ourselves. He brings real life together for us. And when we are willing to take ourselves off the throne and put Jesus Christ on the throne of our heart, and I confess with my mouth, Jesus, you're the boss. You are on the throne. You are Lord. That's what the word means, Lord. Are there times in which we still sin, we still mess up? Yes, we do. And we, we, we push Jesus off, we get on the throne. No, we take ourselves back off and we repent. Oh God, would you be on the throne of my heart? When we confess with our mouth, Jesus, I want you to be the boss of my life. I don't even understand what all that means, but I want you to be the boss of my life. And I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. It's one thing to believe, okay, I believe in God. I believe in the resurrection. Okay, what next? It's one thing to believe it mentally, mental assent. It's another thing to believe it to the point of commitment. I believe it to the point that I commit my heart to him. The Bible says when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised from the dead, you're saved. Okay, but do I know for sure, like right after I die, i got to wait till I die, and then, I gotta, then I'll find out for sure if I'm going to heaven. It's a little late then. And the Bible never says you have to wait. The Bible says you can know that you know that you know right now. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to heaven. And I'm going to heaven because I'm not, not because I'm a pastor and not because I'm a member of Sugar Creek Baptist Church. I'm going to heaven because I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I'm going to heaven. So look at what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. God saved you by his grace when? Circle the word when. God saved you by his grace when you believed. When you believed, he saved you. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. This isn't something you've earned and so you got a payment. No, it is not something you earned and so he gave you heaven. That's your payment for being such a good person. No, it is a gift God gave to you. And notice the next. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So nobody can brag about it. You are not good enough to go to heaven. You will never be good enough to go to heaven, and neither will I. But heaven is not a payment for all of our good deeds. Heaven is a gift. By the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. Here's what the Bible says. All of us are sinners. Every one of us. There ain't none of us that are good. All of us are sinners and in need of a Savior. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. And Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says this, And the wages of our sin is death, meaning a spiritual death, separation from God forever. But, I love that word in this verse, but the gift of God, there's that word again, gift, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Today is the day of your salvation. Today you can come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior 
and you can be saved today. Would you be willing to do it? When this service is over in just a few minutes, right out in that commons area, and you see that big playscape, and to the right, the room that says Next Step Center, just go right to the Next Step Center. Our ministers are there. We'll talk to you one-on-one. How can I know? Help me, help me to understand this better. How can I know Jesus as my Savior? We'll help you today. That first begins with settling in your heart. I receive, I believe, and receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. There's a second thing, and it's this. Live now a life of investment in eternity. Live a life of investment in eternity. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 7 and 8. Solomon is saying, it is a wonderful thing to be alive. If a person lives to be very old, let him rejoice in every day of life. But let him also remember that eternity is far longer and that everything down here is futile in comparison. Jesus is really saying very much the same thing, but a little bit to the next level. And here's what Jesus said in Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust do corrupt and thieves break through and steal. He's not saying don't have a savings account. He's not, don't, he's not saying don't save for retirement. He's not t- saying that. He is saying don't give your heart to retirement. Don't give your heart to your money. Don't give your heart to your business. Don't give your heart to your career. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on the earth as though that is all there is where moth and rust do corrupt and thieves break through and still lay up for your treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot corrupt and thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Live your life with eternity in mind. What is these treasures we lay up in heaven? Acts of love and kindness toward God and others. Acts of love and kindness toward God and others. The greatest expression of love toward God is obedience to Him. You and I need to live every day, every moment of our life with intentionality because we face moments every day, all day long. We face opportunities just to be nice to somebody. Just acts of love and kindness toward somebody else. Some demonstration of love toward another human being and love toward God. Love toward God in His Son, Jesus Christ. I do know that in this room, I'm not dumb. I know in this room that there are some who probably in your mind right now are saying, "Uh uh-uh. God, I want you at arm's length. I don't want you messing with my life. I don't want you interrupting my life. I'm going to do what I please. You stay over there. I'll stay over here. I don't want anything to do with you. And do you know what God says? Okay. Have it your way. Okay. He does not force himself on anyone. You make your choice. Okay. But here is the truth. God doesn't send anyone to hell. They send themselves. Okay. Let's pray. Father, you have laid it out so easily, so understandably. You have given the greatest thing you could have ever given your son to die in our place on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, to rise again, to demonstrate you are who you say you are. And oh God, I pray today that there be people in this room 
who come to know Jesus Christ as Savior because they finally open their eyes and say, I, I want this. I choose Jesus. I choose Jesus. Father, I pray for those in this room that are visiting our church and they know Christ as Savior and there's a sense in their heart this place feels like home. And God, I pray today would be the time they make it their church home and they join this church today. And people that would come and say, I don't know Christ, but I want to know Him. And today they'd make that decision to receive Jesus as Savior. And Father, I pray for all the rest of us that this would be a day in which we recommit our heart. Oh God, I want to keep investing in heaven acts of love and kindness toward God and others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.